Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Eric Lip, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Great. Thanks for having me. Eric Lip is the founder and executive director of the Open Doors organization. He started the organization after personally experiencing the restrictions that people with disability face in everyday life. This experience was the catalyst in encouraging Eric to found the Open Doors organization, abbreviated ODO. ODO works as part 382 U.S. Air Carrier Access Act experts across the globe, working with over 40 foreign carriers. Eric is also an expert in civil aviation laws in many parts of the world, including Europe and South America. Odeo also recently started work training 10,000 plus Amtrak frontline employees on accessibility. He also recently received the Community Support Award from U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Transportation Security Administration. Odeo also acts as the centralized dispatch for all 334 wheelchair accessible taxis in Chicago, allowing people with disabilities to have on-demand transportation unlike anywhere on the globe. Wow, impressive. Thank you, Eric. So we're going to kick off our first question with what you wrote in your bio, which is that you started your organization, Open Doors Foundation, after personally experiencing the restrictions that people with disabilities face in everyday life. So I know you were diagnosed with von Hippel-Lindau disease, excuse my pronunciation, so a day before you turned 30, right? Can you tell our viewers what this disease is? Because I think a lot of them are not familiar with it and how it has impacted the personal and professional trajectory of your life. Well, I'm now 20 years into my disability and living with my disease. Von Hippel-Lindau is a super rare disease. It affects, I think, about one in 30,000. So it's even more rare than something like sickle cell. So it's a super rare disease and it causes these tumors to grow on your body uh, because we're missing a tumor suppressing gene. One of the exciting things is, is that the gentleman who just won the Nobel Prize was working on VHL and the effects that the uh, tumors have on the kidneys. So VHL is called von Hippel-Lindau and I had a tumor grow on my spinal cord up here in the thoracic region. Uh, at the top of my thoracic and the tumor was growing off my spinal cord and when it was removed they severed part of my cord to get it out fully and that left me with my disability which is different than my disease my disability is something called brown cord, which is where a little point of your your spinal cord is severed and so that's why i have my disability which is um, i'm a t4 incomplete uh, so the, with half my body, I have strength and the other half I do not. And I have no feeling in one half and feeling in the other. 
I've also recently had one of my kidneys partially removed, uh, removing tumors from there. So the disease really changed my life because I, I was 30 years old and um, I had not checked the box on my employment to participate in the disability insurance that was offered because I thought I was young and wouldn't need it. And then I was left with my disability. And to be honest with you, I couldn't really even get back into the office that I worked at uh, here in Chicago. So I had to really find something that, what, you know, that I would enjoy to do because I couldn't really even get in my office. Uh, but it left a profound effect on me. And that's why I started Open Doors was really because I could not believe the fact that here I was a young guy you know, in a manual chair, willing to do just about anything, making good money in the computer business. And it didn't seem like anybody cared that I had a nickel to spend or wanted to come in the front door or eat dinner there. So I decided to do something about it. Yeah, that's great. And that's how, you know, Open Doors was started. So can you give us a concise and brief summary of what Open Doors does, the, the services your organization offers in, you know, simple language? Oh, yeah, to make it simple, we don't do a lot of direct services to people with disabilities. So our mission is to make goods and services accessible to people with disabilities in travel, tourism, and transportation. So we do that by a lot of education programs, by going out to businesses and doing education programs on things such as how not to damage a wheelchair when it's being loaded into an aircraft. Nobody trains people on that. The guys on the ground don't see them all the time. And there's a lot of idiosyncrasies about wheelchairs and other assistive devices that nobody's ever taught ground crews. And we also do things like taxis or open taxis, which is our on-demand taxi service here in Chicago. So that's, that's a direct service. But mostly our, our mission is to make goods and services accessible in those three areas, travel, tourism, and transportation. And we do that by just working with anybody who wants, who's open with the idea to become accessible. Right now, we're working on a project with I Love New York, which is one of their uh, travel campaigns. And right now, actually, they're meeting in New York right now about it. And the state of New York is really trying to create a clearing area for all of the New York, uh, the whole state of New York, to have a place to put information about accessibility so that people can come and visit. A lot of people from New York like to stay in New York and take trips driving, which is great. And New York has so much to offer that most one county never knew that the other county had that to offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having lived in New York, that's definitely very crucial work. And I think every wheelchair user, long-term wheelchair user has experienced some sort of malfunction, if not loss of, of wheelchair during travel. So I know my wheelchair, when I was traveling to a small town in China, it got mangled. So that's such important work. And I think more people should be doing it. So I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, one of the early starters, and I think we can get more people on board with it. We actually started a company to help repair the wheelchairs. So if your chair got mangled in China, my idea was to make it like Domino's Pizza, where you get it fixed in like 30 minutes or less. So we created a company now that works all across with all the major airlines that repairs wheelchairs, scooters, and other devices almost on the spot. Wow, that would be impressive. <laughs> and really wonderful. So I understand Open Doors works as uh, Part 382 U.S. Air Carriers Act, uh, Access Act. 
experts across the globe. So working with over 35 foreign carriers, right? As we, as we read earlier. So for listeners who are not familiar with the US Air Carrier Access Act, which is a mouthful, can you give us a brief summary of the function of this act and what work you do to ensure that this act gets implemented correctly? So it is a mouthful and there are so many people with disabilities that don't even know it exists. Because the ADA is so comprehensive, nobody realizes that there was something invented before the ADA, believe it or not. And that's the Air Carrier Access Act. I'll help you a little bit with the mouthful. In the industry, uh, in aviation, the airlines, most people refer to it as part 382. Uh, So if you you need a little lingo there, uh, part 382 is just what the, you know, it's part of the law, a part of its title, um, the Air Carrier Access Act. So really, It's amazing because it was enacted around uh, 86, which was about four years before the ADA really came into act. So it was really interesting in the way that worked because I don't know the exact history, but I know there were some lawsuits in aviation that were in play at the time. And I believe that those created the Air Carrier Access Act. And what it basically was is a non-discrimination. The hard part about the Air Carrier Access Act is this. There's two things you got to really focus on. Number one, it does not allow for individual right to action. So if you feel like you've been discriminated against by the airline, you cannot sue them for discrimination. You can only file a complaint with the USDOT, and then they decide whether to fine the airline. And the minimum fine now is, I think, $32,140 per incident. So the fines are a lot larger. There hasn't been enough enforcement of the fines. There has been some, but it's been spotty and um, not really uh, with, with much meaning behind it. And it's, you know, they've been doing like maybe one airline every year or two. So the DOT could work a little bit harder on enforcement, but there are a lot of idiosyncrasies there, including the first one, which I mentioned was that non-individual right to action. But the second one is our favorite topic in America right now, and that is service animals and emotional support animals. You know, the DOJ will not allow an emotional support animal in an airport, but we as carriers have to allow them on the aircraft. The hard part about that is, is that when you try to explain to a foreign country that the U.S. laws do not even agree with each other, then it really leaves them in a situation where they decide to make up their own interpretation. Because if we can't make up our minds, then they don't really worry about it um, because they don't feel like they'll be enforced and they pick the law that they feel is going to be easiest for them. And that's one of the reasons why we are where we're at today. And, And that is because the laws do not synchronize. So those are the two major differences. The other thing that's super important to know about the Air Carrier Access Act is that there's always help available with the airline, even at the point of travel. It's called a CRO, a complaint resolution official. And if there's anything that goes wrong, even if you're not getting through the gate agent, ask for the CRO. They may not know what a CRO is. And some foreign carriers, the person may not know what that is, but they need to know because by not knowing, that's actually a $32,140 fine, which you could then file with the DOT, a complaint that they didn't even know what a CRO was. But that CRO for most foreign carriers is trained by open doors. And they'll know exactly how to handle almost any situation. 
I see. Wow, that's great. And you're still trying to work out the um, conflicting interpretations, right? We're still trying to. The DOT has now put out some more information and some more rulemaking, and we'll see where it goes. Mm, I see. How do you measure the progress and success of your services? It seems like you have a few different things going on. So most of it is, you know, in our statistical studies, all that show up. But how we affect is, you know, I kind of say it like this. We don't chain ourselves to the front doors of companies and we don't try and sneak in the back door. We go in the side entrance with all the employees and we really learn about the company and we try to change them from the top down. And I see some concrete movement all over, especially in aviation. Uh, you know, I was asked to speak at the, the assembly, the general assembly of IATA, which was its 75th anniversary. It was formed after World War II to govern the skies. And for the first time in its 75 year history, they had somebody with a disability present. And then they passed a resolution to make accessibility across the globe. And now IATA is working on everything from batteries to, I mean, having them involved is probably the biggest thing that we've ever done is getting IATA involved in the capacity that they are. And another thing was, is that they used to be the US Travel Association, uh, which is, it's, it's, uh, used to be the TIA, is now the U.S. Travel Association. In their monthly questionnaires, they actually ask about disability now. And so being counted and being tracked in numbers over time, it's been almost 10 years now, we have a really good idea of how disability spending and travel and tourism. So that's been amazing. And as well, I always can walk through airports uh, because we work with many airports, probably 70 or 80 across the globe, and I see everything that we do. Um, I see the wheelchair pushing um, at airports, even though their complaints are still really high, way too high. It's down from where it was, 20, 30% down from where it was, but it's still too high for us. And so we'll keep working on that. Uh, we had some uh, Laurel Van Horn from Open Doors work on some new regulations for passenger vessels. And that was really put into act a couple of years ago. And we saw cruise lines and cruise companies all over the world start to talk to us about accessibility and not just accessibility at the cruise lines they really wanted to go above and beyond they want to make things good design and that is something that we love to hear you know so people who are deaf or hard of hearing and people who are blind things that are going on in the airports right now for people who are blind or have low vision i i think it's just amazing and i love to see it so we've seen a lot of concrete changes in airports and airlines cruise lines even at amtrak uh, there's new policies and procedures to helping people with disabilities make travel easier. Uh, you'll see it even in taxis here in Chicago. Our taxis, we have on-demand transportation. That, what, how amazing it is here in Chicago is that if, we're, if it takes 15 minutes to get a cab, people get upset with me. And if everybody, and I actually take that as a compliment <laughs> because I go, I travel everywhere and I use a scooter and I can't get a cab for hours if I get one at all. And the fact that now the expectation here is within 15 minutes, well, that makes me super proud. Also upset, we're gonna get better, but I'm happy with that. Yeah, no, that is definitely an amazing service. I know having traveled to different parts of the world myself, it, 
even if I, you know, if we hail a cab, for me, I've had a lot of experiences where they drive up and they see me in a wheelchair and then they drive off. This happened in New York City. We're not talking about third world countries here. That's amazing that you have these on-demand services and also under 15 minutes, 15 minutes or under. That's yeah. wonderful. I hope that you expand the service to other parts of the U.S. and, and then perhaps internationally. We need it in Washington, D.C. I was recently there at a meeting for the TSA, and there was a cab stand, and not one of them would take me. And I could not believe it. And I called Uber, and an Uber car came in and folded up my scooter and put it in his trunk right in front of those cabs. And people wonder why the industry is where it is, but all they had to do was help me. It's that simple. Yeah, no, it's very disgraceful what you know, what we experience sometimes. So I know Jersa, I read a company from outside Mexico is making stairways that take passengers up to the aircraft door in their own personal chairs, eliminating Andy hand carrier, hand carrying. And I think I'm quoting you here. And then in Japan, some providers are working on an automatic wheelchair that can be summoned by smartphone, scan its client's boarding pass, and then take the client to the correct gate. So what other new travel technologies are you excited about that are coming to the airports in the near future, such as the, the few that I've, I've just listed? Well, those few are totally exciting. Another one is called Ira and Be My Eyes, where if you're blind or have low vision, you can walk into a lot of uh, cultural facilities throughout the United States, museums, theaters, cruise ports, airports, uh, travel ports, anywhere, and they have free minutes. And what it is, is, is you either have these glasses that you wear and they have a camera on them, or you can use your phone and you can hang it around your neck. And it's having somebody tell you what you're facing and looking at. So they can tell you exactly. So if you open your cabinet and you need to know which soup was uh, tomato soup, you could use it then. And that's becoming less expensive Airports are starting to pay for it and malls, shopping malls are starting to pay for it. So that's going to be really a big change as well as indoor navigation. Indoor navigation for people who are blind, have low vision is going to be very, very integral part in the next century because they're going to start traveling more independently, especially when you can just hook your smartphone up. You won't even need a dog or a cane really. I don't know if the white cane will go away because that's you know instantaneous uh, touch, but as, as long as these indoor GPS and wayfinding, you're gonna see more and more of that for sure. And then you know listening devices. I'm seeing some trends in airports uh, starting to put in hearing loops. And I think the hearing loops seem so rudimentary, it just doesn't make sense why we don't have them everywhere. They're not that technologically advanced. They're not new, certainly. Uh, it's just a matter of getting people to understand the importance of them and how they really affect the aging population or using hearing aids that are using these T-coils. And, you know, hearing and vision loss, I think, will be really big things, areas that we're going to need to work on as an industry and travel and tourism to keep the aging population coming back over and over, especially, you know, like printing large print menus, uh, you know, having areas in restaurants where there's more light than others so people can see each other, read lips, things like that. Yeah, those are exciting developments and hopefully it, it will be implemented more broadly in all the airports. 
So um, I'm quoting you in the next question. You yeah. once said that wheelchairs were not made to fly and airplanes were not made to carry them. So what did you mean by this exactly? And how can we manufacture wheelchairs in such a way that they are more conducive for traveling? Well, I have studied this extensively and I can tell you I know the answer. The answer really is this. They aren't made to fly. Wheelchairs and other assistive devices are made per spec for insurance. So if you have a power wheelchair or a scooter, when you leave your house, there's no insurance on that chair. Anything happens to it outside, you can't buy insurance. So you have to fix it yourself, right? You really don't have any way to fix it if it breaks or unless it's defective and the manufacturer will fix it. So what the problem is, is that the wheelchairs are built to spec for insurance reasons. And most people don't even realize that we, when we take and we sign that form and we take delivery of our chair, that we're signing away a lot of our rights on if things get damaged. And one of the biggest things is, is, you know, damaging on aircrafts and there's just no, you know, and the, the manufacturers won't make them to fly because they're made for insurance specs, which really is for you not to fly, not to leave your house. They don't want you going off road in it. They don't want you going downstairs in your wheelchair. You know, that's just the way they do it. Here's why, because insurance companies won't reimburse. And so until the insurance companies tell the manufacturers, I want you to build spec so that it can tie down in an aircraft they won't do it. You can tie down in a bus and in a train, but not in an aircraft right now. And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, and it's mostly because of the way the chairs are manufactured. The manufacturers could solve this instantaneously. They and the insurance providers got together and decided whether they were going to cover wheelchairs more broadly. It's, it's really that simple. The manufacturers have no real motivation to, to change it to fly. And, and why is that? Why do they not have a motivation to, to make it so that it's easier to it, transport on planes? Because the insurance companies aren't asking for it. And if they're damaged on planes, it just is more business for them. And also wheelchair users aren't necessarily advocating for it directly, right? Right. Most people don't understand the core problem is that they're built to spec. And the spec doesn't include the airlines. Now, they've made improvements like clearer tie-down points. For, for airlines and travel, they're not, they haven't been immune to it and they're trying to help. The problem is, is that they're not getting any reimbursement and nobody's paying them to make those changes in designs. You know, the and if they change the design much, then the insurance companies have to go back and look at it and they have to retest. And I just don't think that it, it's not conducive, it's not you know, economically smart at all. And are you starting the process to get more wheelchair users or more knowledgeable and take more action in this aspect? Yeah, we're hoping with the FAA Reauthorization Act, and they're doing a study on tying, air, uh, tying down in aircraft. And I think what they're going to learn is what my research already showed was that it's going to be the insurance company and the manufacturer that need to sit down and figure it out. Once they figure it out, you add Boeing and Airbus in and we'll, it'll get done. But until that insurance company's there, we can get the FAA Reauthorization Act. We can cry, scream, fine, you know, whatever we want. We can fight till, you know, tooth and nail, but we're not going to get it until those two groups sit down and talk about how to do it. 
I see, I see. So I know one of ODO's functions is to teach businesses how to succeed in the disability market. So how do business, businesses su succeed in the disability market? And what are the special characteristics of the disability market, quote unquote, disability market exactly in terms of marketing to this audience? And I know that businesses don't generally market to people with disabilities, but what are some effective ways that they can market, they can start this process? So marketing to people with disabilities sounds really easy, but it's not. Remember, this minority is like the largest minority. We cover all boundaries, right? It doesn't matter who what you look like, what you believe in, where you're from, you can come and join us any day, right? So there's nowhere on earth you're gonna avoid us. So having said that, that means that we are super broad, right? We're men, women, bleh. we are such a broad group. How do you pinpoint and get that information out to this broad group? Well, what we showed in our studies were is that there's a lot of money and that's how we educated businesses. We educated them by quantifying, you know, a lot of people always threw out numbers and said things, but until you get a reputable firm behind a statistical study and you actually perform it and then trended over time, it, it's very difficult to get people to believe the numbers, but they believe ours because of the way it's been done and the credibility behind it. And it shows that there's money. So we built the business case. That was first. Here's the business case. Then it's like, all right, so you have all this money, then what? Well, we just, because of this broad spectrum, you really have to break it down. Uh, into types of disabilities, right? So we have mobility, hearing, vision, and then even those can be broken down further, right? Because people, some people are deaf, some people are hard of hearing, some people are blind, some people have low vision. There's different degrees of mobility, right? Some are quads, some are paras, some are incomplete. Blah, blah. So it goes on and on. So what we really recommend is that you have to do focus groups. Um, we always start everything we do with focus groups uh, to learn about what people are looking for with different disabilities. And we go beyond that and you have to look at their caregivers and their parents, mom and dad, things like that. And then you have to really get down to each segment. This is what mobility users need from us. This is what people who are deaf or hard of hearing need. And this is what people with, who are blind or low vision. And segment those out and then try to pinpoint things. So in aviation, one of the things is, is autism has been kind of pulled out. And now there are events at airports where you can take your child to the airport, do a whole practice flight before you fly, try it so that the day you already bought your ticket and you show up and your child can't make it, you don't have to go home and lose the money. You can come and you can do a test run and see if they like it, go in the airplane, go through security, do all that fun stuff. And then the next time you actually take your trip, you're ready to go. And that's like right for that segment. We also do those kind of outpatient rec therapy at uh, places like the Shirley Ryan Abilities Lab and the Shepherd Center. And uh, there's a bunch of them working on it that even Burke in Philadelphia, where they take people who are newly disabled out to the airport and teach them how to fly because that was something I needed to learn right away. And nobody was there to teach me how to fly using a wheelchair. And I ended up getting carried and I didn't like that. So, uh, so those are the kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the most effective way for everyday citizens, both with and without disabilities, to advocate for accessible travel and, and accessible infrastructure? I, you know what I do? I point to success. So if you live in Boston right now or you're in Washington, D.C., especially Washington, D.C., especially with the cabs because I have trouble there, you just need to point. 
and say, look what they're doing in Chicago. If they're doing it there, then we should do it here. Why can't we do it here? Is Chicago better than Washington? Because basically that's what you're telling me. Chicago's better than Washington, D.C. because that's what we do here. That's how we roll. I think that it should be a competition to see who can pick me up in less than 15 minutes. Which state can I go to and take my whole staff of people with disabilities and be serviced just like anyone else? Yeah, so just being more vocal and really taking action since, you know, very few of us stats show, very few of us are employed. And oftentimes you don't really see that many people with disabilities out and about being really active. So that's really crucial. What policy recommendations do you have for Congress in terms of making travel more accessible for, for people with disabilities currently? This is where I usually get in trouble. Well, I think we're working on it in aviation. I think two of the most important things are to get the ADA and the ACAA, Part 382, Air Carrier Access Act, to get the ADA and those on the same level. They have to be equal laws, and they have to be cohesive. Silly that it's not. The other thing I'd like to see is for the DOT to lose the ACAA altogether and move it to the DOJ where, where it would sit with the ADA. It can still be a separate law and separate everything, forms of, you know, forms of uh, enforcement, but the DOT should not have that. It should be with the DOJ. And the problem that you see right now is because it's not like that. The other thing I'd like to see throughout the United States is deregulation in the taxi industry. I believe that if they were deregulatory, cost less, I believe that, I can just tell you what happened to me uh, yesterday in Atlanta, uh, at the airport, I was going to take an Uber or a taxi, and I decided in an Uber, and the taxi was sitting right in front of me, but I decided we'd take an Uber to see the experience, and it was a five to seven minute walk from where I was, and then I was there, I was waiting another five to seven minutes, and I waited almost 15 minutes for my Uber, and there's a taxi sitting right there. But for some reason, there's this image that it's way more expensive and, and it is. But if we deregulate it, we can get the cost equal and then people will get equal service from a taxi or an Uber. Those are the two big things I'd like to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I hope Congress will watch this, the answer to this particular question and, and heed your advice. So going back to your early days, I want to pick your brains on you know, business advice. What advice do you have for people with disabilities who are trying to, you know, start their own business? What resources would you have liked to uh, see made available when you were starting ODO? So the toughest thing for me was, is I, I didn't really realize that I thought maybe I was reinventing the wheel. I wasn't. It was more so about I wanted to do disability stuff and I wanted to do travel, but you have to find a niche and you have to find a niche in what you're going to do. Like right now, I think there's a huge opening for people to do something similar to open doors, only at grocery stores, 7-Elevens. I think retail needs an open doors. I think that even, you know, there's just so many different ways that you need organizations that you have to find the niche. I can tell you this, when I started open doors, this was not that mission cha statement changed. Um, after like a year because we could not survive doing what we were doing. So you really have to find that niche, go into it knowing that, that it may not be easy. The nonprofit world is not an easy way because it's hard to ask people for money. It's hard to find grants. And, you know, there's lots of great grants, but they usually, you know, it took me five years to be able to get any because nobody really gave starting nonprofit grants. 
So that was really difficult. One of the things that I could have used and still could use, and I think is so important, we're not included in MBE, Minority Business Enterprises. Disability is not included, period, in the United States. We are in Chicago on a local level for some things, but I'm talking about state, federal contracts, things like that. We don't get MBE status, so you could have a, an owner of a store with a disability and they don't qualify for any of those grants, any of those contracts that are asking to 10% minority things, none of that. That's what we could have used early on. So what do you think were the factors to your success? Because you have grown Open Doors to such large scale. And you know, as you were saying earlier, you're in 80 airports and yeah. doing several other important work. And so, yeah, what were the factors and core principles? Well, one was being a nonprofit because we were very thin. We would have never survived as a for-profit because it's very difficult early on. But I think really our success has been perseverance, um, just sticking it out and finding topics and things that you can really work on and make solid change. I think that that is really what helped create our success is our longevity. We were always going to be here, even under a thin budget, we were still here. Um, but I also have to give a lot of credit to Laurel Van Horn. She's a pioneer in accessible travel and tourism. I think she is the pioneer. Most people don't know her, and certainly most don't give her credit for it. But um, she is definitely, in my belief, the one of the, the founding fathers of accessible travel and tourism. And when she came to Open Doors about 12 years ago, it was, it was changing for us because she gave us direction that we really needed. When I said finding that niche, she, she kind of showed me that niche. Here's where it is and here's what you got to do. And that was super pivotal for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, what challenges do wheelchair user leaders face specifically in the realm of starting a new organization or company that are different from the general population, if there are any? Well, there is one, and I think it's major. It's that when I pull up in my scooter into a group of men who are standing there talking about travel or their hotel or their airport, and I'm sitting in my scooter, I don't get treated the same as if I, even if I walked up with my cane and stood eye to eye with them, I don't get treated the same until we get over that. And why do you think it, that is? Why are you not treated the same? Right, because I'm at a lower level, you know, just physically being lower, I think, and you just don't get treated the same. I see such a difference when I'm sitting and talking to people rather than when I'm standing up. People talk over you, it's a horrible thing. Uh, and, and I think once we can get over that fear and that animosity to say, hey, why don't we all go over here and sit down and talk or, you know, one guy come down and speak to you at that level and then everybody else come down. Um, we're not there yet. Not in business. We're not there yet. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I'm not sure we're there in life yet either. Yeah, no, we're certainly not there, generally speaking. So can you elaborate on the difference just a little bit more, please? You know, the differences are you don't look people in the eye. Like I, if I'm looking up at you and looking you in the eye, it's more strange for you to look down at me to look in my eye. And if you're in a little group with three or four people, they're going to look across at everybody's eyes and not go down. You know, I'm going to keep going down at you. But they'll look at everybody's eyes while they'll talk and I can see they're not looking down at me because that's almost an unnatural movement when you're in conversation to put your eyes down rather than just to somebody else's eyes. So you end up getting talked over a lot of times. And I, I sense that. And also just because of the difference in size, you have to speak louder. 
um, you know, I have to sit up and yeah, you know, to get in the conversation. And I can't just use my hands like that because if I do that, I hit them in the stomach. You know, if I'm standing at their level, I can talk with my hands. But if not, you know, I can't really do that. And they people talk with their hands. And so there's just so many of these little things that are, are tough to overcome these fears. I believe they're fears and biases that people have that they probably could overcome if they thought about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just being a little bit more conscious. In the moment. Um, last question. What is your best tip on managing people? As the founder and, uh, and executive director of ODO, I'm sure you have lots of experience with that, especially managing someone as someone who has a disability. So, yeah, this is a different little, people don't ask me that very often because I am a boss of people with disabilities too. So I hire people with disabilities and I don't always like what I see. I don't think a lot of people with disabilities get that kind of fine tuning before the interviews. You know, nobody, maybe they haven't had the class in resume writing or done a mock interview with somebody beforehand to kind of get that expertise. But I learned this about hiring people with disabilities. We're some of the best employees too. Finding the right people is the same as finding anybody. And that's what I learned is that when I created a flexible work environment for everyone, it fit everyone. So I was just quality, I was just attracting quality people with disabilities and without because the work environment was inclusive. It really wasn't accessible. It was just inclusive because, you know, working hiring people to suppose you learn that it's just got to be inclusive and then you see the kind of issues that other people have able-bodied people have are actually similar right you know that something's wrong in the kitchen or this and that you know so I was able to really learn how to that was a great valuable lesson learning how to create an inclusive work environment for everyone which was flexibility and I think flexibility is huge now including attire I see people at IBM wearing you know t-shirts now to work so I think that shows there's been a big shift in that kind of paradigm and it's more, more inclusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much. You've been very insightful with your responses and I've learned a lot. I think our listeners will too. Thank you so much for your time, Eric. Thanks, man. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel. How do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries? What language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability? We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. 
If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.